Okay, you're in uh, chapter 14. We are chronologically in the latter days of the Passion Week. And last Sunday, Corbett did an excellent job with the Olivet Discourse. Uh, that was a massive undertaking. So thanks, Corbett. Great job on that. I do appreciate that very much. I know everybody else did as well. And so as we transition out of that that theological discourse, we're going to move into a narrative here that touches really on the contrast between hatred and love. And you can probably look at the headlines in your Bible and see, we're going to go through uh, verse 11, you're going to see the plot to kill Jesus, and then the second part is Judas to betray Jesus, but sandwiched in the middle of that is... Uh, Another thing, where Jesus gets anointed uh, at Bethany, and that's one of the things that we'll discuss this morning. Bereans, did you realize that Mark in his gospel devoted over one-third of the entire book to the period from the Passion Week until Jesus' ascension? One-third of his gospel covers that short period of time in Jesus' life. And there's a purpose behind that. In fact, all of the Gospels do that. Let me show you something here. When you look at Matthew, 36% of his Gospel, Mark, 36%, Luke, 27 and John, almost 40% of their Gospels are devoted to that time. Mark here wanted his readership to understand that by going through that Passion Week, Jesus was providing a way, a hope for eternal life for those who would believe in Him. If you look at all of the Gospels together, by chapter you see that His infancy or His young life, we'll call it, encompassed only 4% of the total amount written in all four Gospels. 55 chapters, or 62% of it, was to his public ministry. And then 34% was to that Passion Week. Folks, there was a reason why they spent that much time there. They wanted us to have faith. And he had to provide that with his sacrifice. The question I want to ask you today is, how serious are you about your faith? You know, many of those believers that followed Jesus faced death and experienced death, horrific death in many cases, for their beliefs. Mark's audience that this was initially written to took their vows their beliefs very seriously. We know Jesus took his vow to God very seriously, don't we? And as Jesus' life begins to come to a close here, we're going to begin to see who among his closest followers took their vows most seriously. You know, I bet you if I went out and did a survey in Tarrant County, I would find a huge amount of people saying, yes, I'm a Christian. In fact, Steve, uh, Steve, Dr. Lawson, Stephen Lawson, one time at a Shepherds Conference said he was from Mobile, Alabama, 
And he made the statement in front of 4,000 people. He said, and everybody in Mobile is a Christian. Or they'll tell you that they are. And you know, it takes those trials and tribulations to find out what you truly are made of. And fortunately for us in this world, in this particular society, our lives are not threatened by our faith. And I pray that none of us have to deal with the potential of being either proclaiming Christ or dying for Christ. But there are people around the world today, still, that face that reality. So the question kept coming back to my mind, Jeff, how serious are you about your faith? When the times get hard, will you still believe? Will you still have that faith that Christ is your only hope? You know, when you and I confess Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we also made a vow to Him, a vow to follow Him, a vow to be obedient to his teaching, will we be faithful regardless of the cost? I want you to ponder on that this week and think about how serious your faith is to you. Or is it just a box that you check on Sunday mornings to say, I went to church. I never miss church. Let's get into it right now. Let's go. And the first thing we're going to read is the timing. Matthew 14, 1, and I'm only going to read the first portion of it. It says, Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away. Let's stop there. We're now on Wednesday of the Passion Week. Let me show you my timeline here, and you can see that we're on Wednesday, and we'll read of this morning the plots of the Jewish leaders to kill Jesus. And we'll read about the beginning of the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. And those events took place on Wednesday. But what don't you see listed here in the chronology that we just talked about? Right. You don't see the anointing of Jesus. And I'll explain to you that in just a minute, where it is in the chronology. All right. The second thing we're going to talk about is the treachery. We're two days before the annual pa uh, Passover festival. Now, the Passover festival is a time once per year when sojourners traveled from all over the nation of Israel, and they traveled to Jerusalem, the capital city, to begin their sacrifices and celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This time and this particular festival recognized two elements of the great exodus from Egypt. The first one is the Passover, when the people were told by Moses to put lamb's blood on their doorpost. And the purpose in marking their homes that way was so that the angel of death, when they came through, this angel came through, they would pass over that house. And the angel of death was killing every firstborn in every family in Egypt. Can you imagine that night? There were untold numbers of inconsolable parents as God besieged the land of Egypt with the final plague 
in order to break the will of Pharaoh so that he would let God's people go and leave Egypt and head to the promised land. The second part of that is the unleavened bread. As you well know, yeast is what's required to cause bread to rise, but it doesn't do it instantaneously, does it? It takes time, okay? God had cautioned the people to be ready at any moment to leave Egypt. As soon as Pharaoh says you can leave, they needed to get out then before he changed his mind. And because of that, they had no time to put yeast in the bread and wait for it to rise. And so this celebration took place each year. And folks, it continues to take place every year for the Jewish people. This year and the year 2023, this is celebrated from April 5th to April 13th. They still remember the exodus from Egypt. So this is the setting of these events. It took place on a Wednesday. There's lots of people. The city is swelling up. The city normally was, I don't know, approximately 50,000, 60,000, and now it's going to swell up to into hundreds of thousands of people as they come in. And what happens when you get amongst a crowd? Things begin to get a little edgy, don't they? You know, we like our space, and so things begin to get a little more tense. And whenever there were large crowds during those days, guess who else was present? The Romans were. In fact, they would bring in extra troops from various places in Israel into Jerusalem just for the purpose of quelling any riots that might occur. Jerusalem at that time, every year, was a melting pot of foreigners, soldiers, and Jewish sojourners. That's where the, the treachery is going to be taking place. The next thing we'll see is the plot. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 from 14. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priest and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. Okay, as we read in those two verses, you see that the Jewish religious leadership were seeking somehow to capture Jesus and to kill Jesus. They were probably having daily meetings trying to design a way to grab him without upsetting the crowds. In fact, look with me at John's account of this. I want you to flip over to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Now this is uh, after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. That's what the setting of John 11:45 starts with. We're going to be in John 11:45, and I'm going to read through verse 50, and then I'll skip down and read one other verse. John 11:45 reads this, Therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done, now this is Mary of Bethany, and saw what he had done, believed in him. Many believed in Jesus after he rose 
Lazarus from the dead. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man, talking about Jesus, die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now skip down to verse 53. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. So they, they had no intentions of seizing him and putting him in prison. They planned to murder him. They were way past, past a flogging. They found out that there was no way they could reason with him. He was smarter than all of them. But he was dangerous to them. This Jesus had to die. And how can they do that when they virtually have no evidence of something worthy of death? And any evidence they had would be circumstantial at best. But you know, desperate people plan desperate things, don't they? And these men were desperate men. They literally envisioned losing their place in society. They were willing to kill a man to maintain their job. This place that they talk about, this was the place that they so worshipped. Their place was their reputation. It was their income. It was their livelihood. These men had spent their entire lives clawing and scratching their way up the ladder of the religious leadership to get where they were. And so they were not interested in some, what they considered, illiterate backwater preacher coming from Nazareth, of all places, and taking away their livelihood. They said, this is not going to happen. It's better for him to die than for us to lose our place and maybe even lose our nation. So that's the plot. They're going to grab him. They're going to kill him. But what you also see here is the procrastination. For they were saying, not during the festival. Otherwise, there might be a riot of the people. Yes, they had decided that Jesus had to die, but how and when, that was kind of still in the development stages. They can't rush him, for the crowds are all around him. They don't have anyone on the inner circle with him so that they might know his whereabouts. Like I said earlier, he was well beyond reasoning. They couldn't talk him into coming in and 
turning himself in. Well, we'll discuss they're very fortunate and God-ordained. I want you to understand that. It was God-ordained that this happened. But we'll discuss this opportunity in a few minutes about how are they going to get him. But for now, they decided that they could not take the chance during the festival because of the potential of starting a riot. And if they started a riot, what brings into play? The Romans come in. And the Romans were going to come in with swords swinging. And heaven only knows what would happen if you let those brutes take over in a crowd. So these men were truly stumped as to how to achieve their objective. They were struggling with it. They're in a stalemate. And for the answer to that, it's going to be too big continued. I'll get to it, but we're going to cover something else in between. For now, let's look at number three, the tension. Verse 3 of Mark 14. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard. And she broke the vial and poured it over his head. Okay. You've all heard this story before. I know you have. You've read this probably many times, maybe in your daily reading. But what we're doing here is we're shifting scenes to a very different place. We move from the war room in Jerusalem where they're trying to figure out how to kill Jesus. We move from there to the living room of a little house in Bethany. We move from the bulging metropolis to a little village. You can see where it was. You see Jerusalem, and only about two miles away is this little village of Bethany. Remember earlier, I asked you what was missing in that Passion Week timeline? Well, here's your answer. It is an act of love sandwiched between two passages of hatred. Now, why Mark wrote this in the middle of the passage the way he did, we don't know. But if you just read the first part of verse 1 that says, Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and then you continue right into verse 3, your average Bible reader would say, they would assume that this event that happened in Bethany occurred on Wednesday night. Because there's nothing that tells us differently. And yet, it doesn't. Did it happen on Wednesday? No, it did not. You have to do your homework on this one. The first thing in doing your homework is you need to understand something about the author who wrote it. We need to know the author's tendency. And Mark, as a writer, has a tendency to shuffle chronology around at times. And so you have to go search the other accounts to figure out what is the real chronology here. One commentator wrote this about Mark's gospel. 
It says, Mark often uses indefinite terms and phrases in transition from one event to the next. Mark describes a number of, of events without providing a reference to a definite time or sequence. He uses phrases like and, or it came about, or in those days again, and they do not necessarily signify an explicit sequential relationship between the events. In fact, closer analysis sometimes shows that these phrases actually point toward a thematic arrangement of events. Thematic organization of materials such as this is typical. You and I do it when we do such things as I'm going to describe. It's typical of the way people sometimes relate events in history. Let me give you one example. If one were describing a person's sense of humor to someone else, a person wouldn't necessarily relate those humorous incidences in chronological order. Instead, they would say, oh, I remember one time he did this, and there was another time he did that. Oh, yeah, when he was only 12 years old, he did this. You see where I'm going with it? It can be out of chronological order, but you're still talking about a particular theme. And the author, the uh, commentator says, Mark often used a thematic approach. And so you can't always assume when you're reading your Bible that what happens next was in the proper chronology of what happened before. That's all I'm trying to get over to you is when you read your Bible, sometimes you don't just read your Bible, you have to study your Bible. All right? So I had to go and research some other Gospels to find the proper sequence. And we could spend the rest of our time talking about this, but we need to move on. So quickly, turn with me, and I'll show you how we get our answer. Go to John chapter 12, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 4. John 12. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. All right, does that sound familiar? That's John's account of what I just talked about in Mark. And he says, Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet, remember that, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Okay, folks, so what we find out is this event of Mary pouring this nard over Jesus really happened Saturday night of the week before the Passion Week. That would put it six days before Passover. But if you just read it in Mark, you would think it happened on Wednesday night. Matthew, Mark, and John all record this event in the same place. They say, and we read in, uh, back in Mark, 
that Jesus ate dinner at Simon's house. Okay? Who is this Simon guy? Says he's Simon the leper. Well, you know as well as I know from studying the Bible, they're not going to let any leper in a house. They're going to be off somewhere alone. So who is this guy? Well, commentators believe that this is one of the people that Jesus had healed of this terrible disease and probably as a kind expression of love and gratitude for Jesus' mercy on him, Simon invites Jesus, his disciples, and his dear friends Lazarus, Mary, and Martha to join him for a meal. All right. In fact, John records that Lazarus is reclining at the table with Jesus, so we know Lazarus is there. And Martha was serving even though it wasn't even her home. Don't you love Martha? You know, Martha gets so much uh, trouble, but this woman loves to serve. That, you know, that's her gift of, uh, from the Lord is to serve. And she gets such a bad rap at times, you know. Everybody's raving about Mary, and Martha's over here with all the serving. So we got to love on Martha too, okay? Don't forget. Some even speculate, some uh, commentators even speculate that Martha may have cooked the meal and then taken it over to Simon's to serve. How many of you cooked a meal and taken it to somebody else? They'll go, well, I never have. Let me put that down. My wife has. I'm just the driver. Oh, here's your meal. I didn't cook it. And so we're not sure. But here's one thing that is obvious. One thing that's obvious is that to serve that many people, they had to have a home big enough to do that. And to put on a meal for this many people, most commentators believe that Simon was fairly wealthy to be able to do this. So please don't ever assume, and some people do this, please don't ever assume that Jesus never associated with rich people. Because he did. Commentators believe that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were rich. We, we believe probably here that Simon the leper was rich. Rich being a relative term here. Okay? In fact, Jesus is an equal opportunity savior and healer. <laughs> he was a friend to every socioeconomic category. And aren't you glad of that? I know I am. Okay. That was... <clears throat> The, uh, the tension, let's talk about the provocation. Verse 3 again says, While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. Okay, we read there came a woman. But who was this woman? Well, neither Matthew who gives an account of this, or Mark, name her, but John does. John names her. John says in John 12, 3, that it was Mary. Well, thank you, John. Which Mary? There's seven of them. I don't know which one it was, so what we have to do is a little detective work and deduct, since Lazarus was there, 
and Martha was there, and it's in Bethany, I'm going to put my money on Mary of Bethany. That's where I'm going to go. If y'all think there's a different Mary, then you're wrong. (laughs) So here we go. We think the most likely choice is Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha, since John places both of them at the meal. So then Mary takes this vial of expensive perfume. All right, and this is what an alabaster jar of perfume would have looked like at that time. And, and you can see the kind of the crack up here at the top. They had, uh, that's how they broke it open. But it was sealed when it was made. They poured the liquid in, then they, they sealed it. Okay? Now, how did Mary get this expensive perfume? We don't know. It was either a family heirloom, or sometimes she had obtained it. Somebody gave it as a gift. We don't know. But a a vial of pure nard, also known as spike nard, she takes this and she pours it over Jesus' head. Now, spike nard is a plant that grows only in the Himalayan mountains of India and Nepal, and it was a rare imported product of immense value. I want you to think of the rarest, most expensive perfume in our modern world. Think about that. Well, that was this. And she had a pound of it, John tells us. And at that time, they used the Roman measurement system, so a Roman pound, also known as a litra, not a liter, but a litra, would have equated to about 11.6 ounces of fluid. Um, About the amount of uh, fluid that would fit inside a Dr. Pepper can. And so I brought a Dr. Pepper can. And I filled it with spike. No, 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 I didn't. (laughs) I filled it with water. Not complete, because this would be 12 ounces, so I'm trying to approximate approximately what it is. But I want you to, as I do this demonstration, I want you to think about this being poured over Jesus' head and his feet. Now, this wasn't a spritz. Think about that. That's what was poured over him. It would have been running down his face. It would have saturated his hair. It would have run all down his back. She poured it on his feet. She wiped his feet with her hair. And it says, And the room was filled with the smell of the per... That's an understatement. To think that much pure perfume would fill a room. Obviously it would. In fact, I'm going to make, I, I'm gonna make a, uh, a statement to you that I believe is true. I believe seven days later when they crucified Jesus, you could still smell that perfume on him. That's how strong it was. And John details that, saying that she poured it over his feet as well and wiped his hair. Two things to note here. One is it obviously filled that room up with the smell of it. 
I just I can't even imagine that much perfume in one room. Secondly, and most importantly, to anoint Jesus' head, as Matthew and Mark records, is one thing. But also to anoint his dirty feet and wipe it with her hair was the ultimate example of humble and contrite love. Mary loved Jesus. Let me ask you, have you ever had your feet washed ceremonially? I have. We went to a family camp one time at our church back in North Carolina, and our pastor washed every person's feet. It was a tear-filled experience to have someone humble themselves to the point of washing your feet. We're going to see later on that Jesus does that to his own disciples. In our modern times, we keep our feet cleaner than they did back then. They didn't have socks and shoes like we have to keep the dirt off. Their feet stunk pretty much all the time. So you can imagine the, when she is wiping his feet with her hair. You know, that undignified act of washing feet was reserved for the lowest of all possible servants. But Mary does this with her hair for the one she loves. Do you love Jesus enough to wash his feet? I hope you do. I hope one day I'll get the chance to do it. She did. Mary did. And you know, as she did that, you would have thought in that moment that the room would be filled with warm respect and gratitude for such an honorable worship of Jesus. Let's find out what really happened as we read about the protest. Verse 4 and 5, But some were indignantly remarking to one another, Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii, and the money given to the poor, and they were scolding her. Of all the people, you would have thought that the disciples would have had reverence for such an act. You know, they had witnessed Jesus heal many people of all sorts of diseases. They had watched Him raise people from the dead. So you would think they would have been happy for Jesus to receive such an honor. Instead, what we read of here, of the disciples, and especially one disciple, we read of them condemning and rebuking this young worshiper. Listen to it again. Why has this perfume been Wasted. Wasted is what they said. Pouring oil, I mean, the perfume over Jesus' head, they said was wasted. What does that tell you about how high they regard Jesus? They don't. 
John's account even names a name. He claims that Judas is the one that made the statement about the 300 denarii. By the way, 300 denarii at that time was about a year's wage for a common worker. Okay, we've seen the provocation, the protest. Let's look at the parry. Verses 6 through 9. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She's done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly I say to you, whenever, excuse me, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Now let me explain to you why I put parry up there. A parry is a fencing blade work. How many of you do any fencing? Anybody do fencing? You know what a parry is then. It's a, it's a blade work maneuver to deflect an incoming attack. A parry means to ward off an attack with a counter move. Okay? And here Jesus meets their condemning attacks of her with a very abrupt and a terse parry. He tells them in modern vernacular, Knock it off, guys. Leave her alone. Then he explains why. But as usual, his thick-headed twelve didn't let it sink in. He even reasons with them. They said it could have been sold and given to the poor. He reasons with them. He says, you'll always have the poor to care for. And you can go care for them whenever you want. They're always going to be available to you. But you're not always going to have me. He gives all kinds of hints of his future, but they just don't get it. And they certainly didn't think his not being around was going to happen anytime soon. My goodness, the man's 33 years old. He's in good health. They're not thinking he's going to go anywhere anytime soon. So in response to their rebuke of her, Jesus honors Mary with a declaration that her act will be recorded for all time. And guess what? Here it is. For all time, her act will be recorded and read about to show her love for Him. But you know, I want you to see one other nuance here. As I studied this passage, this just haunted me. Jesus defends the woman, and He defends her act, but He does not defend Himself. He didn't say, look guys, I'm God in the flesh, and therefore this is something that should be done for me. In fact, you should have thought about it before she did. Does He say that? No, He doesn't. He wanted the disciples to have reverence for him of their own volition not by him telling them that they should be worshiping him and one thing is fairly evident here by their response they did not have a high regard for jesus in fact they had more respect for the poor than they did for jesus they had become so comfortable with him that they had relegated Jesus to just being one of the guys. 
I remember one time, a long time ago, when one of my sons, at an early age, started to call me Buddy, started to call me Jeff. I can tell you that didn't end well for him. And I said to him, you will address me with respect for our relationship. At 12 years old, I am not your buddy. I am not your friend. I am your father. Now, when you're an adult, I will be your friend. I'll be one of your best friends. But I will always be first and foremost your father. And in fact, I can tell you this, if he had addressed Debbie like that, uh, he wouldn't be alive today and I'd be in prison. <laughs> Fortunately, he very quickly got the message. But let me, there's a little lesson here and there's no charge for this. For those of you who are parents, please do not let your children disrespect you. The fifth commandment is paramount here that they are to honor you as their mother and father in this situation with mary an old cliche really does apply the cliche is familiarity breeds contempt have you heard that these 12 had forgotten what their place was in relationship to jesus and that's what bothers me so badly when I hear people refer to God as the man upstairs or my heavenly buddy or God's my bro. Or some other term that we might use for a human friend. God is not our buddy. He is not our bro. He is our creator, our sustainer, and our judge. And we're to give Him the respect that that is due. He can take you out of this world in a heartbeat and make another one look just like you if he chose to. Don't ever disrespect your God and always remember your place when you think about your Lord. He's not our buddy. He's not someone that is equal to us. He is not equal to us. Let us always treat Him with honor and glory that He deserves. All right, now we're going to talk about <clears throat> the traitor. We've now shifted into the end game. The Jewish leaders are looking for answers as to how they could seize Jesus, and they're about to be rewarded from a member of the most unlikely group as we read about the proposition. This is in verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. All right, we're back on Wednesday of the Passion Week, and we read that Judas goes to the chief priest with an intention to betray Jesus, but we're not told what prompted him to do this. The event in Simon's house, where he kind of got singled out and and chastised by Jesus, it might have been the stroke, uh, the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. We're not sure. It may have been something else that's upset him. We're not sure, but we do know that Satan was behind it. 
Alright, this is a sword drill. I'm going to be moving pretty quickly through some verses here. John 13, 2 reads this. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Okay, so it says that the devil had put it into his heart. John 13, 18. I do not, this is Jesus speaking. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the Scripture may be filled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. He's referring to that person who would betray him. John 13, 27. After the morsel, remember he says, who is, one of the disciples asked him, Who is it, Lord? And he says, It's whoever that I dipped the morsel for. And he gave it to Judas. And he says, After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. In Luke 22, 2, the chief priests and scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they're afraid of the people. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And in Luke 22, 6, it says, So he consented, he consented to betray Jesus, and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. Opportune time. Opportune time. Hmm. I've heard that before. You have too. Wasn't there something in Scripture about Satan looking for an opportune time? In Luke 4.13, when Satan is tempting Jesus, this is what it reads. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. This is it. This is that time. And it says in John that Satan enters into Judas himself. Folks, there's nowhere else in Scripture where Satan personally entered into and possessed a person. He left that dirty task to his minions, his demons. But Satan was not, uh, was not about to let some second-rate demon mess this one up. You know, when all else fails and you don't like what somebody else does, do it yourself. This is Satan. I'm going to enter into Judas so that this doesn't get messed up. Satan has been waiting for years for this opportunity. And so Judas approaches the chief priests, and we read about the promise. They were glad when they heard this, talking about the chief priest, and they promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. You've heard of a win-win situation? This is a win-win-win situation. If they pull this one off, Satan wins, Judas wins, the chief priests win. But the question that that situation really begs to have answered is how did Satan get Judas to take this step? 
Why would Judas do this? Well, I have a hypothesis I want to share with you. I don't always have scriptural basis. This is just my beliefs. We know that Judas was a thief, but I promise you this had nothing to do with money. It had nothing to do with money at all. And we know that Judas was smart because they allowed him to handle the money. He was like the chief financial officer for the ministry. He was a really smart guy. But we know Satan is much smarter, isn't he? Genesis 3.1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said to you, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Satan deceived Eve to sin. Now I want you to understand, he didn't make her do it. It was of her own decision to do it. But he deceived her and he influenced her greatly to do it. Here's another one, 1 Chronicles 21.1. Then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. Remember, that got David in a lot of trouble with God because he had told him not to do that. Satan deceived King David to sin. And I'm here to tell you today, he's deceived you and he's deceived me. Many times. Folks, Satan didn't enter Judas's body and drag him over to the Pharisees. He deceived him into believing that it was the right thing to do. That's how it often is with sin. We sometimes commit the sin because our mind has been deceived and our hearts are justifying it. I believe the same thing happened here with Judas. So why would Judas do this? Well, I believe that Judas was discontented with Jesus over many things. One was the slowness of the progress made in the ministry. They kept asking him, when is the kingdom coming, Jesus? You said this kingdom is coming. When is it coming? It's been years, Jesus. Where is it? It probably bothered him that Jesus had this meek and mild and compassionate demeanor that he always displayed. That was not kingly behavior, by the way, in any Jew's mind. When they thought of kings, they thought of warrior kings. I believe that Satan <coughs> convinced Judas that if he could push Jesus into a corner, if he could just get him into a way to where he couldn't escape, then the King David warrior type of Jesus would come out. He would show up and come out fighting. And Jesus knew, excuse me, Judas knew that every time someone tried to push Jesus off a cliff or they tried to stone him, he was able to escape, wasn't he? He said he, went, he walked right through the crowds. I believe that Jesus, Judas thought, if I can just put him in a life or death situation, he'll choose to save his life. No man wants to die and is going to go and die for other people. If I can put him in that position, he'll save himself. And then he'll bring this kingdom to earth. 
In other words, Judas thinks he's smarter than Jesus. And he's just got to help Jesus with this plan. But after Judas discovered that Jesus was going to face death, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Matthew 27, 3 and 4. Do I believe that Judas resides this day in heaven? Absolutely not. I do not believe that. That's a message for another time. But let me leave you with this. Judas didn't betray Jesus any worse than Peter did. Peter told him, I don't even know the man. I've never heard of this guy. I got nothing to do with him. But Judas sought a different place to wallow in his sorrow. Peter suffered great remorse, and he sought forgiveness through tears and prayer at the throne of grace. That's where Peter went. He went back to God and said, forgive me. Judas suffered great remorse, and he sought relief through anger and pity at the throne of self-reliance. How sad, how tragic that was. One chose to humble himself before a forgiving God, and the other chose to work out his own failures at the end of a rope. And so as we end our lesson today, Judas looked for an opportune time to put his plan of action into play, and Satan smiled ever so confidently, probably saying to himself, you know, I just love it when a plan comes together. And little does he know who he's messing with. So what's the application for our life today? You know, I watched for years as our dear sister, Patty Morris, demonstrated her love for Christ in the face of looming death. And she knew that Christ was not going to physically heal her in this life. But she exhibited a love for him and others until the very end. That's called love, folks. Love is what makes you stand strong in times of trials and tribulations. And Patty showed that so brilliantly. And today she's free. Free from all the pain and suffering. And as Tom has said, on many occasions of funerals that I've been to, Patty's more alive today than she ever was on earth. As Christ walked with urgency toward the cross, He demonstrated the unconditional love that He had for His followers. And therefore, you and I should pay Him the reverence that He is due through our love for Him and for others. And one commentator wrote this, Christ cannot possibly love you anymore. He can't do it. He loves you to the max. And He refuses to love you any less. His love for us is perfect, and it's totally sufficient. And speaking of love, I have a special homework assignment for you that's fitting for our discussion today about love. 
In our passage, Mary showed her sincere love for Christ in a very special and <clears throat> excuse me, a tangible way. So here's your homework. Do something special for someone you love. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you love us to the very end. Thank you that you're so good to us. And you've given us your word that we might read it, study it, and learn from it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.